0: You're listening to Inkstuds, and my guest this week is Camel White. Uh, Campbell's new book from Top Shelf uh, is Home Time* Volume 1. I guess I shouldn't say new book, because it came out in the summer, and I'm very remiss for uh, not connecting with Campbell earlier. Uh, I've extended my apologies. We've been emailing back and forth, and now here we are talking, and it's no longer summer. Vancouver had the worst torrential rain we've had in quite a long time yesterday. Um, so summer is long gone. I guess it's getting there for you in Australia.
1: We're heading that way. We are slowly heading that way. Yes, <laughs> Does it and ever like it's still, it's still it's still newish. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's my newest. I, don't know. I
0: guess it's only been out like a month or so. Yeah, that's pretty new. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm gonna post this next week so it's not like this is gonna languish. Um and like I was sent the PDF Back in the summer, I was like, "Oh, this looks amazing," and then I saw the book in person at a local conference. I'm like, "This is awesome," um, and I think the, the 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 book edition gave that little more oomph that the PDF was was missing. Not that the PDF wasn't great, but the the uh,
1: uh, yeah. The... I don't think PDFs are the best way to read comics. No, generally, <laughs> like longer longer comics, you know, yeah. like. I don't think it's the ideal reading kind of uh, situation for someone. Yeah. Now, is, I was
0: looking around, and you don't really have a lot of comics work per se, from what I could glean from from your website and my cursory googling. Um, but this in itself is actually a pretty hefty book, rounding up to close to two hundred and fifty pages. Um, had you done many comics? That I just haven't seen yet.
1: Leading up Not... to this. Not really, like little things, you know, kind of single page things or five pages or 15 pages or nothing sizable and nothing sustained like this. So it was always sort of little one shot things or self-contained works. And, um, you know, like home time's been in the works for for so long that it was kind of, I couldn't couldn't do anything else that was of scale, if that makes sense. You know, if I if I were to do a thirty page story or a sixty page story, then that's thirty or sixty pages of home time I wasn't getting done. Yeah. So I had to really kind of focus on on the one project, which has been ongoing. Like the initial idea came about about ten years ago, and then it's been slowly bubbling away since then. So,
0: um, ten years that, that that's a good chunk of time uh, for it to kind of rack away in your brain. Um, yeah it's <laughs> is it it was it always a comic that you wanted to do or was it something you wanted to do in kind of
1: a different type of form no it was it was always a comic so I've always you know I've always loved comics and in illustration obviously illustration is kind of a lot less demanding maybe than, than a sustained comics work so you know there's always that pleasure of just doing a you know a one one kind of one illustration and getting it out into the world and getting feedback whereas Comics is, you know, pretty l- slow and laborious process a lot of the time, and so on. Um, <laughs> so I was just focusing on illustrating, and I think, you know, like, uh, I guess almost like working out, you know, like hitting the gym every day and doing a bit of illustration work and then getting to a point where I was kind of confident enough or comfortable enough to make a, a long comic.
0: Um, were you doing, like, commercial illustration
1: Oh, uh, just a tiny bit, but mostly just for myself or commission work or. Yeah. yeah so it's mostly that sort of stuff. Because um, I work, I, I do work full time outside of kind of the, the illustrated comics world. So. Um, yeah, you so teach, I work... teach, right? Well, I, I've got a couple of hats. So I work full time <laughs> at the Western Australian Museum. Okay. So I develop all sorts of programming and interactives there. So lots of all the family family programming and, um, yeah, in gallery interactives. So that's my that's my day job. And then on Saturdays with my wife, uh, we run a kids' art school called Milk So I teach comics making and my wife Liz teaches like um, uh, kind of more the painting and sculptural side. And then in between that, I make home time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now – So why it takes so long to make. <laughs> yeah,
0: it i mean that's kind of how it is nowadays it's it's a balance of a whole lot of gigs just to keep things flowing
1: yeah yeah and i really like i really like that balance like i remember when i first started working full time at the museum a lot of my friends were like oh that's kind of like the death bell of like Campbell doing any creative work or you know you're never going to get anything done now and i actually get more done now, working full time than I used to when I was working part time. And I think it's, I think a lot of it's that sort of financial stability, which is, yeah. you know, glamorous and unsexy as it sounds. It's like I don't have to hustle for gigs illustrating, I don't have to hustle for workshops. I know the, you know, the mortgage is getting paid and the, there's going to be food on the table, you know, and then so that frees me up to actually just kind of go, all right, well, my arts practice, my comics making doesn't have to yeah. make make me money. It's fine if it's completely cost neutral or even isn't like that's, that's okay.
0: Is part of it being able to kind of treat a job like a job and like be able to go home at the end of the day and you're not at work because that, that can be a challenge for a lot of folks. It's something that's really important to me is when I leave work, I, am I'm not at work. Work is out of my brain. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so I've had, I've had, you know, times at work where, um, you know, I get up in the morning and I'm thinking about, my day job and I go to my day job and I do the day job and then I go home and I'm thinking about it until I go to bed. Yeah, And that's not ideal. But the, you know, the current role I'm in, um, is, is the one where I can turn up and I work hard while I'm there. And then when I leave, I leave, I leave the job. Yeah, You know, that, that's ideal. You know, I think that's important for people's kind of mental health. Starting
0: home time 10, 10 years ago, tell me about the process of kind of getting from there to kind of where you decide to get to with the book um, and kind of finding what it looked like.
1: Yeah, right. So the book started off, it started off as this sort of almost a response to, um, you know, it's a lot of stuff, but it, it, one, of the, one of the core sort of moments of when the seed landed was this, um, Liz, my wife and I were living in um, San Francisco at the time, in um this artist uh, share space and it was when that the harry potter series was just coming to an end and um you know the last book was just coming out and and everyone in the house was pretty hyped about it and uh you know the book arrived and we all got our copies delivered and uh we got you know we all sort of hold ourselves up and we read the books and and um you know kind of decompressed afterwards and uh, we were sort of reflecting on what what that book meant, why that was of interest, um, you know this this very British story. and it sort of made me, i guess being away from Australia and also listening to this English story, um, you know, it made us made me see my home from a distance and um, and also kind of think about the literature that I grew up with and um, sort of try to start reimagining. Um, what something from Australia might look like in that in that sort of genre, in that sort of style. yeah and so um, so that was that was the beginnings of it. and it was when it first started, you know this seed of it um, started forming it was uh, it was really quite a generic kind of fantasy story. you know it was very kind of dragons and wizards and um, and castles and things like that and and the more I kind of scraped away like I was really unhappy with that. Yeah. But I kept scraping away and and it was you know we went to Mexico as well during that trip and spent spent a lot of time there and just reflecting on you know being away from home and what what does home actually look like and what does it sound like and what's what are the layers of history that are in my hometown that I can that I can start scraping away at and so setting really solidly setting the fantasy world where I grew up and 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 riffing off the sort of the history of the space made me a lot more comfortable and confident with the work and helped grow it a lot more. Mm-hmm. So I kept, I kept just developing this and kept mining the history of the space and, um, and researching that and trying to weave that into a fun kind of narrative. And, and so it kind of got to the point where I was looking at that and I was looking at structure and what sort of a narrative structure I'd like for it all all these kind of formal properties that I could then push against, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It's like, well, what are the boundaries of this work? And, you know, it's it's these sort of, you know, 12, 30-page chapters. Um, so I was almost imagining it like a, kind of a maxi series, um, if we're thinking of periodicals. So it's then breaking down into these individual chunks and then thinking, okay, well, each, each chapter is from the point of view of a different kid. And so then kind of scraping away at that some more and kind of going, okay, well, then I could do each chapter in a, you know, how do we get that that tone? How do we get how do we convey that shifting worldview or the character's perspective without having kind of captions or narration, which was something I or thought balloons, which was something I didn't really want to have in the work. Yeah. Um, how can I convey that visually? And so that's about that's what those shifting styles are about as well. Does that make any sense? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: We're go- we're gonna jump into the shifting styles a little further in a bit, but I want to kind of talk about your home and kind of see what's like see what's important about it and kind of other questions it was it Perth that you grew up in
1: it was yeah and it is So that's where I still live yeah um and that's I think there's a lot you know a lot of it's a it's not a big town it's not tiny either it's but it but it is what it is and there's a lot of um you know when I was growing up there was sort of a lot of Not disdain for it but you know people people growing up in it would would often move away from it yeah you know there's always this call of moving over to the eastern eastern side of australia where it was um somewhat you know more developed or more refined or more cultured or more more whatever you wanted was over there and so there's you know there's a real kind of cultural drain that occurs here and um and so you know there's a part of me that thinks well i thought if 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 you don't reinvest in where you are, then it will never grow. Mm-hmm. You know, it can't change. And um, so that's kind of why I'm interested in making works about this space. It's not because I necessarily love it. It's not like I'm like, it's the greatest place in the world. Um, but it's it's my place. It's the place that I have a connection to and a responsibility to as well, I think. Yeah.
0: I had this totally weird I don't know if it's necessary non sequitur, but um, in my day job, we ha- had uh, someone who's interested in doing um, some internship at in my work who does social policy in Perth and just talking about how um, it really is a lot different than the rest of Australia because of where it's located and kind of the different challenges that it deals with um, where on the East Coast you're... you're connecting with a lot more different things um you're kind of alone there
1: in a weird way sorry what was that last
0: bit it's kind of alone in a weird way that's like
1: yeah 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 oh yeah it's very it's very re- removed from the eastern eastern states which are you know all of those all of those major capital cities are you know relatively close to one another compared yeah. to, compared to um, compared to WA, which is which is so far removed, yes. and um, yeah, yeah and Sha-
0: it's, Sean Tan from there too.
1: He is yeah. So he lives over east now, but he's he's from Perth, and you know a lot of his work, are, you know, is clearly about Perth and his experience growing up here. And so, grow me growing up here, you know, he was he was you know a huge inspiration in terms of someone who's from this space making work about this space that is. You know, broadly received, yeah. well, and it and it reads internationally as well, um, and it's and it's moving. And when you read it from as someone from here, from Perth, um, you can see yourself reflected in it. And I think that's so important for for people, for children especially, to see themselves reflected in the media they they consume.
0: Is that part of why, like, for your work? I mean, you work in a museum, and then on the weekend you're working with kids and of like the role community plays in you as a person as a daily thing
1: yeah i think it is i think it i think it really is and it's um you know the older i get the more important i see it as being yeah i think when i was younger i was sort of that you know i fell into that kind of uh individualism and you know you know you go it for yourself and you go on your stride and you know you're self-made kind of person and, and the older i get the more i'm like that's such nonsense <laughs> like <laughs> no one there's no such thing as a self-made person like it's it, you know it's it's you're standing on the ba- on the backs of everyone who came before you and and everyone around you and and yeah. so then it is that sort of uh, responsibility to ensure that you know, you've benefited from this great cultural machinery that surrounds you and you need to, you know, you need to give back and support it, you know, in return. Yeah. And I see my work, you know, my day job as being part of that, my weekend work. And this book as well, in a, in its own way as being part of that.
0: Yeah. I love that. Um, one of the things, like, I think, when I think of Australian folks that I know, in they all kind of do that, like, time living abroad and then coming home. Like, okay. um, you know, like Simon Hanselman went, lived in London for a while and then went back to Australia um, living in Vancouver. We have a plethora of 20-something Australians uh, working in service industry jobs um, that don't tend to stay here into their 30s.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a kind of rumspringer sort of thing. I think Australia, though, as well, you know, we're not, um, we're not, we don't share any borders with anyone. So if, if you're growing up in Europe, you can just, you know, hop in your car and, and drive to another country that speaks another language that that has a completely different cultural practice and history and architecture and um and you can you can do that, and even in the states, the diversity that's represented through the different states is is really quite incredible. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously, you you know, in the states, it connects you know up in North Canada, and uh, I don't need to give you a geography lesson; I'm sure you're aware <laughs> of it, South to Mexico. You know? <laughs> really? <laughs> I know it might be startling, um, I've, but I've been looking at the map recently. And, uh, <laughs> You know, but, but Australia, sorry, is a unique proposition of being. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't have any borders, so you have to travel if you want to see something. New. You have to travel internationally to see something different. Yeah. Or um, and so it's really it is really ingrained in in our um, in our culture that yeah you do travel like you do you do travel a lot and, and regularly if you if you have the capacity financial capacity to yeah. Um, and so yeah yeah there is that. There's definitely that, and then you know that gives you an opportunity to reflect upon. You can actually see where you're from when you're away from it. Yeah. When you're in the midst of it, you you it's very difficult to look at. It's very different, difficult to actually critique it or understand what's happening, because um, you're so used to it.
0: And so, for you, spending time in San Francisco, kind of, that was your rum swimming up.
1: Before. Yeah, and Mexico as well. We, you know, we were in Mexico for. I think it was almost six months, and that was my wife's originally from Mexico, oh, okay. and so we got there, and um, and that was amazing as well, and to and to see that space, um, how that functions, and how the, I don't know, I think you know, I think that's a really fascinating, um, yeah, fascinating space and country and, and um, cultural history that's occurred there, and the way that it manifests today, um, yeah, is really really amazing
0: yeah it, it Mexico's so fascinating because it's not just like one pan nationality. there's so many different regional mm. uh, identities within Mexico. So like it could be in the north or you could be in Oaxaca or Mexico City, and it's all very different idea of what Mexican yes. is.
1: Yeah, it is very radically different. And I think I think one, you know, for me, one thing that I became really acutely aware of in being in that space is um, the role that architecture plays in um, during times of colonization as well. Yeah. So when we look at the Spanish colonization of Mexico, you know, a lot of the architecture wasn't simply destroyed; it was repurposed or reimagined. Um, you know, and so obviously there's you know there's a huge cultural violence that takes place in the the shifting of the architecture of the repurposing of it, you know, that's a violent act, but then that skeleton that it, it remains there and it's still visible Yeah. in the everyday. So, you know, the, it's, it's still all there all the time. Whereas in spaces where they're, um, they, you know, that were colonized, such as Australia, where the, um, you know, where the Aboriginal peoples broadly didn't have, um, you know, architecture on the scale of, you yeah. um, the pre-Hispanic Mexican peoples, then it, um, you know, then it just washes away. And, and you know, we've got a really Australia has a really rich history of white supremacy and um, and of this just clearing of the land and mining land and stripping away of the the, the markers that the um, that people had that represented their culture mm-hmm. um, because they weren't they weren't they didn't want to be acknowledged by the Europeans. So, you know. And, and we, and there wasn't that understanding of, uh, of the natural land as being of importance yeah. culturally, you know, it was, it was a resource and we, we still see those effects today. It's yeah. still happening today.
0: And that's very similar to the story here in Vancouver. Um, yes. With our, with, yeah. with indigenous communities here. Um, there's a lot of parallels between our two places and, and how yes. they've treated indigenous folks. Um. I'm wondering about a couple of different things. I'm thinking about from what we've just been talking about, kind of going to your book. But before we jump into that, kind of want to get a better idea of your book because folks are just kind of hearing us talk peripherally about it. Um, but what is it? What is home
1: time? Yeah, sure. yeah, sure, uh, sure. It's so it's a it's a story about six primary school aged children, and uh, they're on the last day of primary school. They're living in Perth. On the west coast of australia in the major major capital here and they're walking home they're just in a suburban school just a normal government school and they're walking home on the last day of school to go to a friend's sleepover as sort of an end of year celebration slash um, graduation slash birthday and uh, they walk themselves back and they stop and get some some chips some hot chips from the local fish and chip shop and they go and they eat it down by the the main river that cuts through the city um the derbel yarragon or the swan river as it's known and uh, they accidentally fall into this river. And when they uh, wash ashore, they find themselves in this kind of enchanted, magical forest, and they have to uh, find their way back home. Mm-hmm. And the children are sort of adopted uh, by these uh, these magical, sentient fruit people that are sort of the manifestation of the, the, the forest itself, or the voice of the forest itself. And they kind of adopt these kids as being... Uh, you know, these kind of godlike deity creatures. Um, and so the kids have to perform this sort of, oh, yes, we are these magical creatures, but, the, you know, we are these deities, but we, we don't actually know anything about anything. And the teachers have to sort of, yeah, negotiate that. But it's, but it's, it's, it's fun and silly as well. And, mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Now, when, when you're talking about the Mexican architecture, I'm wondering, because uh, when you brought that up, kind of like, I see some of that in your book. Um, and just kind of how architecture plays a role within mm. the, uh, the 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 fruit based land.
1: Yeah, so that's you know, like in terms of how the peaches uh, the peaches arrange their their little village. Do you mean? Yeah.
0: Well, the, the there's the some of the village. There's the the glass kind of conservatory
1: yeah so that that glass conservatory that used to um that used to exist on this on the perth uh foreshore okay. so that was a yeah so that was when i was growing up uh that was this uh oh what is it called it's not a is it a conservatory it's like where have plants almost like a big greenhouse uh, yeah um yeah so so that was uh filled with tropical plants and so that was this sort of like uh really wonderful place you could go and visit and look at all these tropical plants and um, and it was this, yeah, it was this huge glass pyramid on the foreshore. It was fascinating, but recently it was it was torn down uh, to make way for some new developments. And so, you know, I guess this is a bit of a spoiler if you haven't read the book. But maybe you shouldn't be listening to the interview. Um, but uh, but what, what what happens in that chapter is that the children kind of they venture out beyond the border of the forest or the village that the peaches have sort of said you can't go beyond this this wall. And some of them sneak out. Because they're kids and they're you know they don't like being told what to do, yeah. and they find first of all this glass pyramid, but then they go on and find a whole bunch of heritage buildings, and so all of the buildings that they find are, are real buildings in Perth that have been torn down. So. Um, our, you know, our state has a real boom bust economy um, because we're a mining state. So during these times of boom, we love to, uh, historically have loved to tear down old buildings and and replace them with huge glass skyscrapers and things. Yeah, just and, like
2: Vancouver.
1: Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a good, it's a good tradition, isn't it? And so, and so, lots of well, all of those buildings and structures um, are historic structures uh, that that were once here. And of note, and so so with the with the story, there's lots of things that were once here and are no longer. They kind of have this second life in in this the space that the children visit.
0: Oh, okay, I was wondering if it was kind of like a dr- drifting classroom type thing or not.
1: Drifting. Yeah, drifting classroom. Uh, but it's not. You know, I in Canada. Sorry? It's not like that. It's a different thing. It's not. No, but I encountered that book while I was writing this one, and it totally blew me away. I, I, I read it, and I had to stop halfway through because it started giving me really vivid nightmares, like I was waking up. <laughs> it was scary for me, and I had to leave it for a few months, and I went back to it, and I, I loved that series so much. It's just incredible. Um, and, yeah, it, there was a bit of that, and you know, it kind of made me consider how intense do I want this story to get? That's what it really is. Yeah. And it, I don't go as intense as drifting classroom. That's no. for sure. <laughs> but that was good because it was kind of, you know, on a scale of maybe uh, the line, the witch and the wardrobe to the drifting classroom, where do I want to sit? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Is the adventure just really fun and light and um, enjoyable or are there quite scary ramifications and, and, um, you know, trauma that occurs.
0: Drifted Classroom is like 13 amazing volumes of kids just yelling, running and yelling.
1: Yep. It has the best screaming faces, I think, (laughs) ever. They're like seared into my mind, the looks of horror on those kids' faces. It's so good. It's, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It's really good. It's really good drawing. That's what it is. It's just like, and I remember when I first started reading it, I had to redraw a lot of the panels to kind of, Somehow, synthesise what, what, how he was drawing those kids being so scared. It was, it was kind of amazing. Yeah.
0: Uh, but your kids aren't as scared, and your your world is not as yeah, evil.
1: No, there's the, the level of evil isn't isn't that high. There's scary stuff. I think there's some scary stuff in it, um, a little bit, or menacing things. Yeah. Um, I think Ben's chapter gets, that's probably as, in, as intense as it gets in this book in terms of what the ramifications could be if you kind of, if things go sour in this world. Um, yeah.
0: So um, we kind of fluttered a little bit about um, the book is done in all these different styles and I'm wondering kind of where that came from and kind of the challenge of focusing uh, particular styles on particular ones, especially the, the 8-bit chapter
1: yeah right so um i think like i was saying before it was the idea of how do you convey tone um so there's there's kind of three intersecting reasons why i did that and they they're all through and overlapping and one of them yes i wanted to do that sort of tone what is the worldview of the characters um you know and how do i convey that uh and so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what each kid's chapter would look like and why it would look like that. Mm-hmm. So the first chapter is sort of kind of a group chapter slash Lawrence's chapter, and it's it's pencil and it's sepia watercolor washes, and that's it. It's just lead pencil. And then the second chapter is sort of a lead pencil. It's David's chapter. It's lead pencil, and it's like a it's like a digital watercolor sort of vibe that I was going for. And then. We move into the third chapter, which is Amanda's, and that's supposed to look like kind of a '90s animated series, so a bit like, you know, it doesn't go full anime style. It's not like, um, but it's kind of looking at a lot of the techniques of like Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then to Ben's chapter, which is a really clean line sort of style, like a uh, like some sort of a French album. And then we're moving into Nathan's, which is, like you said, the pixel art one, so it's meant to look like a Super Nintendo game. And then finally we land on Lily's chapter, which is all painted on linen. And um, so, yeah, one of the reasons was so they match the characters' world views. Yeah. And another reason is um, because I didn't want to draw, like, 200-plus pages just in the one style Yeah. Um, for my own, you know, <laughs> health um i would get pretty tired of that and so with every chapter when i you know the first 10 or so pages would be me figuring out how am i going to do this and it would be kind of rough going yeah and then then there'd be like 15 pages of like oh yeah i get this this is this is i can feel this this is working really well and then the last five pages are like i'm kind of over this like (laughs) i want to just different and um And so then that was great because then I'd get to do something different because I worked on them chronologically. Um, And then the third reason is reader fatigue. And this is something I know I experience when I read large comics works is, you know, you kind of ease into their art style. And initially it's like, oh, this is amazing. And I'm analysing every panel and every little stroke of the pen or brush or whatever, and I'm kind of going... Wow, what are the techniques they're using, and what are the you know framing devices, and how does this all work? And then you know, sixty pages in, I'm just like blazing through. I'm just reading the balloons almost, you know. I'm just reading the text, and I'm just like, I'm hurtling through the work so fast. And so, what I wanted, I get snowblind to the work. And so, what I wa- I didn't want that to happen to readers. I wanted the readers to have to recalibrate their their looking, their reading every chapter, you know. Yeah. So um, so they don't get that, yeah. So that's sort of how it came about.
0: <laughs> how far into the process of working on this book do you decide you needed to do this in a way? Like, was there a point where you'd done a bunch of work and went, no,
1: I need to rejig this? Yeah, well, the first chapter, there exists... I, I redrew that three whole times. Oh, Jesus. So... Um... Yeah, so I completely redrew it and slightly rescripted it. So there are three versions floating around and no one will see the other two because they're terrible. <laughs> but, you know, I got, to, I got to the end of the first one and I was like, okay, this is trash. Um, or not trash, like this is I'm, – I'm learning something here. I'm getting somewhere, but this isn't – I wouldn't want to put this out in the world. Yeah. And then I started it again and did it again and got to the end and I was like, yeah, this is closer but not quite there. And then the third one is the one that's in the book. And, um, so I always had that idea of doing each chapter in a different style. That was, that was from quite early on, but the first two chapters, are rendered in the exact same style, except one's essentially black and white and one's in color. Mm -hmm. And so when it got to doing the third chapter, that's when I really had to decide, am I actually going to do this? Like, or am I going to like, am I actually going to do each chapter different? Or am I going to do Amanda's chapter, the third one and just keep doing it in pencil and, and so that was I had to actually plot that and really think about what the ramifications were of doing it, and could I do it? You know, could I actually draw each one in a different style, or is that not going to work? Or, but anyway, as you can see, I decided <laughs> let's try, it. let's try it and see what happens. Um, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. I think I would have been driven mad if I'd been working in the same style the whole way through.
0: Now I want to talk a little bit about video games. Yeah.
2: That's good. <laughs> <laughs> <can> do
1: that. <laughs> uh, what were some of your favorite video games? Uh, I'm a real Nintendo kid. So I grew up with uh, like a NES and then a SNES and then a 64. You know, so I, I ran that and, and kept going. And um, and it was really as a kid, I only realized this now, it was my mom who was really into the video games. Oh, really? So she bought an Nintendo for herself under the guise of buying it for me. And <laughs> she, she talks about, like, you know, trying to get me to go to bed so she could play some more, you know. Like. <laughs> um, you know, she talks about it now. I, I had no idea as a kid. I always thought it was my Nintendo. Um, but apparently she was like, no, no, no. So she actually games more than I do now. She's she's a much, like, she's. I don't have a Switch. She's got a Switch. She's finished Breath of the Wild. She's like, um, I don't, yeah. I've, I've, like, skipped the Switch and the Wii U generations because I just, uh, you know, I, something's got to give. I don't have time. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but growing up, yeah, so, like, Mario, Zelda games were really huge. Um, and those were some of my favourites. I liked playing, like, some of the Final Fantasy games via mm. emulation. I was, like, in high school, so I'd, I'd do that. So that's the early SNES ones I was playing and then NES ones. Uh yeah, and games like Boulder's Gate I really liked on the on the computer. Um, you know, really big sort of those ones, big fantasy stories with um, lots of characters and this huge world you can dive into for hundreds of hours. I really liked that as a kid. Yeah.
0: I'm wondering about how games because I, I really thought about like early Final Fantasy, like the Super Nintendo ones and Zelda kind of feed into your comics
1: yeah I think um I think they do. I think they do there's that I like that idea of well, I guess I guess a lot of what I liked about those games in some way are things that they're in literature anyway, you know, so yeah. if I were to say, oh, I like that, there's a you know there's this group of characters and they're all you know they all kind of fit these archetypes and they kind of move around this world and you kind of go, oh well yeah, well that that happens in you know, after You know the legends of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. You know that's the same thing. It's that happens in the Bible. That's not. Like, yeah. That's not game specific. However, I probably played more video games than I read books as a kid. Read novels. You know. <laughs> so, so that kind of going. All right. Well, that's what I liked about that world. And um. Uh. And I think there's there's real obviously with video games there's a real playfulness about them. Yeah. And there's a real sense of exploration and discovery and. And um and little tidbits being hidden away visually that you can explore and encounter and so I try to do that through the through home time as well as much as I can yeah. um yeah, and I love that idea of you know inventories and backpacks full of things and <laughs> this thing around your internet. so I've got those those supplemental notes about oh, the yeah. world and and all of that sort of stuff, which I really like. Which doesn't just come from video games. Like That comes from kind of James Gurney's Dinotopia and the, the Gnomes series of books. And, um, you know, those, uh, Brian Front's Book of, Fairy, book of Press Fairies, I think it is. And, um, you know, all of that, all of those sort of field guides I really love. Yeah. Uh, fantastic field guides of the imagination. You know, so I'm trying to embed that sort of stuff into it. So really, the book, like Home Time, I did... You know, when I was starting the project, I kind of mapped out these um, all the touchstone texts um, of the book. Yeah. You know, what am I to draw upon? What do I love? And how do I bring it all into one space? Um, and, and then a lot of autobiography is in this book as well. So it's about taking those larger cultural sort of um, influences that kind of washed over my childhood and my experience growing up that came internationally predominantly... Taking all of those, taking my, you know, lived experience here, and also taking the history of the land here, and trying to combine them all into something. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it was really like that—that that open world that I see in your book, where um, we're, we're seeing a little part of it, but you can see it definitely being expansive. And that was what I was really thinking about with the
1: with the games. Mm. Yeah, right. And and so I guess some of the games I mentioned, like Baldur's Gate or like the Legend of Zelda series, yeah. it's that it's that kind of you know in Legend of Zelda. When I workshopped this book previous you know in previous years with with some other comics people, they're like this this game makes me feel like when I played the first Nintendo like Zelda game and and you know there was no map and there was no yeah you, 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 there was there was no hand holding. You were just there. You're yeah. there in that world. And you had no idea what the borders were or what the rules were or, you know, how much trouble you'd get in. And, and um, yeah, there is definitely an element of that. Like that first NES game is um, it's really wild. How how much do you get thrown in the deep end? And it makes no sense. And, you know, I never owned it. I only ever rented it from the video store. And um, so, you know, each time, you know, I couldn't even save my progress or I'd play it, you know. Sporadically over the course of a year, you know, maybe like four times a year, and so my understanding of that topography of the the space is even vaguer, you know, and even weirder, and um, yeah, very hostile, strange. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved it. I loved it. You know, it was just um, yeah, really wild. And so yeah, trying to capture some of that, some of that uh, unfamiliarity, maybe.
0: Now you were mentioning uh, workshopping the the work saying work a lot um with some other cartoonists and that was the cartoon artist workshop in australia there
1: that's right so that was two years ago uh and it was in tasmania so that was a bunch of uh comics makers mainly from australia Mm -hmm. um a few internationals coming as well and uh yeah we each brought a you know a large project we were working on and we spent two weeks in um, actually, it was a remote island off Tasmania, so an island off an island off an island, um, and this very small island called Mariah Island. And it's um, you know there's kind of very little electricity. There's there's no cell phone reception. There's um, we were the only people on the island. Uh, There're no shops. Wow. You know, ferry might come, yeah ferry might come once a day. Um, I think if you've booked it, I can't even remember now. Yeah, I think it only comes if you've booked it or if someone else is coming to visit for the day. So it, you know, it, was, it was actually proper isolate mm-hmm. and do um, was work on our books and, um, and hang out. And so I workshopped home time. I think I'd finished the first four, no, three. No, I think I'd finished the first three chapters by then but had storyboarded and scripted all of them so people could essentially read the book. And so, um, yeah, got feedback on it and tweaked some some things and uh, tried to improve it. And uh, yeah, and then went away and finished it off. And now you're going off to another... another Tonight, weekend. flying out for the next one. So, so it was organized by Pat Grant and Elizabeth McFarlane, um, who are two amazing Australian comics people. And uh, yeah, the Pat- next one... Sorry?
0: I just mentioned Pat's been on the show in the past for his book, Blue.
1: He has. So after you've listened to this, go listen to another Australian. There we go. his book. It's a good one. (laughs) Um, So Pat's bringing his new book, which is exciting. Uh, And we're we're all heading off to Indonesia this year. So it's like the sequel's kind of bigger. (laughs) It's, uh, (laughs) you know, it's kind of it's in true Hollywood style. The sequel is kind of bigger and it's in a more exotic location and it's, uh, and there's more chance for, um, yeah. Shenanigans and ridiculousness. (laughs) It's going to be good.
0: (laughs) Now, were you connected at all with these folks before that first, uh, workshopping?
1: Not really. You know, like uh, quite a few of them knew one another because, uh, because I guess the Eastern coast comic scene's a lot tighter. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot more chance for overlap but no so i went not know anyone like i'd known of pat like i think i'd spoken to him on the phone a few times for various other things like art like i think i was applying for some arts grants or something and um so but that was it yeah it's a bit of a bit of shoot but now you know we're all like blood brothers now after going through <laughs> it after that. But well it's you know it's you know it's like in like in anything if you go on, on Go on a two-week camp with someone, or you're gonna you're gonna bond. I think you're gonna you're gonna get pretty deep with those people. Um, and so, sorry if you can hear that—that's my dog drinking water. <laughs> she's coming. I love she's it. a very nice drinker. She's great. Well, but the you drink know, bowls next to me. She's, hyd- uh, she's a good dog.
0: Hydration's important, as we said. He- summer's he is, coming in Australia.
1: Yep, in this climate, you've got to stay hydrated. So she's doing the right thing. Is Perth hey.
0: pretty dry as a city, or is it somewhat green and lush? Uh,
1: it's it's generally pretty dry. It's pretty dry. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know there are there are some nice park areas and bush areas. Um, but, you know, it's not a desert, but it's um, but it's generally pretty dry and hot most of the year. Yeah. Now,
0: you were mentioning at that first artist retreat, the one um, off an island, off an island, off an island of Tasmania. Yeah. Um, uh, Leela Corman and Tom Hart uh, joined you guys for that, and I'm wondering about uh, spending time with them, because I've heard um, just amazing stuff, especially uh, in regards to Tom's
1: teaching. Um,
0: just yeah, like they're incredible.
1: So they were they they flown over to act as sort of mentors. For the project, mm-hmm. um, you know, during this space to to offer some fresh perspective and some external perspective, and and they were amazing. Yeah, Tom and Lee was kind of insights and um, ways of looking at work, um, either you know looking at it from a really obtuse angle or really um, being able to identify some of the emotional core of the work. Um, and how that can that can grow and be expanded. It was was wonderful, and um, yeah, they're just they're very 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 clever people. That's for sure, and um, know their comics business. So that was yeah, it was a pleasure to get to spend time with them and um, see how they see how they perceive comics and see how they understand the role of comics and and what it can do and what what I guess the unique propositions of comics in the storytelling. You know in in for storytelling and, and why we would do that. And yeah, no, they're, they're very clever people.
2: Mm.
0: Was there anything through this process that kind of affected how you were doing your book? Sorry. Was there any through this process that affected how yeah. you're doing your book?
1: Yeah. So the book that I brought with me, it was pretty, it was pretty bedded down when I took it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms, So it was more of a finessing that I was keen on, like, okay, here's this thing, I'm, I'm kind of 80% sure of it, um, what can I tweak? Because, you know, a, a fair chunk of the art had already been done, so it's not like they, you know, I kind of preface and I said, <laughs> please, please I, I'm not interested in you telling me that I need to actually make a book about jet skiing ninjas. Um, I, I can't do that, I need to finish this book, how can I... You know, improve upon what I've the foundations I've laid down. Yeah. So it's you know, look at you know there are there are quite a few like single panel redraws where it's like, yeah, this panel, this character doesn't work here. Um, you know, we need to change this dialogue here because it's either that you know these characters are being too mean to each other or it's not clear enough what their relationships are or things like that. And I think that's something I'm still learning as a as a storyteller is how to kind of really. I think with this book, you know, there's this line that I want that I'm kind of walking of, of obviously wanting to telegraph, tell a clear story, um, but also not necessarily completely hold your hand through it. And you know, there, there are some deliberate gaps that I leave in the information, and and hope and assume that you know readers will do a bit of the heavy lifting and and kind of link things together. And so, trying to make sure that that balance was right was mm-hmm. was really important and kind of going does it does it make sense or if it doesn't make sense is that a good thing for you as a reader um, is that okay or does it feel like like myself as the creator has has dropped the ball there um, yeah that was trying to trying to get that balance was really what I was hoping for from the workshops
0: and now you've got a book
1: now I've got a book yeah you it's were just a, a- can't smell yeah <laughs> can't smell a PDF yet. You can't smell a PDF and you can't touch it. And for me, that was always really important about the work. Like, what would it feel like? What would it, I mean, I couldn't spec the smell of it. I don't know how you do that, but I could, you know, like I could <laughs> control. I was lucky enough to be able to specify a lot of the, the production end of things. Um, yeah. it was really generous of top shelf. And, um, now we've got a really beautiful object to hold, um, which is important, I think. I think it's really important if we're if we're producing things in this, you know, in the current global climate. If we're if we're actually got physical objects that we're shipping around the world, that we make sure that they're that they should be an object, and um, and or if they shouldn't be an object, then they're a PDF. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think yeah. There's there's a lot of great digital comics that I love reading digitally, um, and they don't need to be. Physical, I can get everything out of them. That whereas, whereas this, I, I I always envisioned it needed to be something you could hold. Otherwise, it's, yeah. Now you, like, that's what?
0: You were just uh, you went to San Diego this summer, um, yeah. I guess to launch the book. And what was that like for you? Kind of not being super <laughs> uh, d- in deep comics to going to the the heartland of uh, Memphis. Um, that's yeah not a very good metaphor but you know what i'm saying no no I,
1: I totally get that metaphor especially um you know working with Staros, i get the i get the elvis metaphor oh that's and right i, I did not even think about that <laughs> you're welcome chris yeah. yeah 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 that was some nice nice bit of uh yeah sick way there um san diego comic-con was yeah it was much huger than i could have imagined so obviously i'd never been before um it was quite overwhelming. I think it goes for five days, yeah. And it wasn't until like the second half of the fifth day that I kind of felt I had my sea legs and was like, okay, I get how this works. I I, I know where the toilets are and what food not eat, and I know how long it takes to get from one end of the convention center to the other, and um, kind of got some bearings. You know, I know if you you know there's this booth, and then you turn left there, and I'll get back to my booth, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so that was really amazing to see how that whole city sort of reinvents itself and becomes in orbit around this convention. Like it's, yeah. it's just on a scale that's incomprehensible to me. Um, and the shuttles, there's like 24-hour-a-day shuttles running from all the hotels to the convention centre that are free and and half of the downtown just like becomes pedestrian only, and ah, oh, yeah, it was.
0: <laughs>
1: I have a cousin.
0: I, I have a cousin that lives in San Diego, and I think he le- like his family leaves town that week. I just, can imagine. Like, yeah. Get the hell out of Dodge.
1: Yeah, I can totally imagine that that would happen to locals. That they, that you'd be. I, I imagine you'd be on a, you know, one of two sides. Either you'd think it was the best thing that ever came. Or you would just be like so out of there because um, yeah because it's a uh, yeah it's intense um, and it was it was really amazing to one thing that I really went away from it with was that appreciation of the um, I guess being able to visually see the people who make comics yeah. and and that's something I think unless Unless you're from somewhere remote or removed, you might it might not be that obvious or or why that's important. But you know, so much of well, with comics, so much of, of what we consume is um, is divorced from the labor of that of the production. So you know, it's a reproduction of a reproduction of a reproduction of a reproduction by the time it comes to us, mm-hmm. and it's gone through so many hands and processes that, that oftentimes the the creator becomes almost invisible in it. And so when I consider you know, in my you know, I'm sitting at the top shelf booth, and I'm looking over, and there's like, um, you know, there's like Stan Sakai there or something, and I'm like, oh, there's that body that made that work, like yeah. there's the actual person who made, um, all those books, or you know, I was lucky enough to get to go to the Eisners, and it's like, um, you know, there's the Hernandez brothers, there they actually are, the 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 human beings that made those works, yeah. and um. For me, that was incredibly affecting and moving to see the people. And um, because it's, you know, it is quite thankless and it's quite um, private work that we tend to do, you know, in studios hidden away from the world. And, um, yeah, to, to understand that, you yeah, know, there are people making this. I mean, obviously, you always intellectually understand it, but it's actually Yeah.
0: No, it's, it's it's definitely different when you kind of look at it as a book in itself, but when you look at a book as that person that you've just had a conversation with, it's a different thing, and that's why there's some cartoons where I can't talk to them because their books affect me in a certain way and how to, you know,
1: navigate the two. Affect you in a certain way, like as in they move you too much or they, they've moved you in a space you're uncomfortable with or...
0: I'd say the profoundness of, of certain works and um, certain creators. Um, like, there's, there's a
1: couple that intimidate me. Um. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I kind of know that, that, that feeling where someone's work has affected you in such a way that um, to let them know that I, I feel would be uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, I'd be comfortable telling them how much their work means. Um, sometimes that happens, and I'm like, okay, well, I'll just say I like it. And it really out amount that I like it, because I think that would be kind of encroaching on their, um, their their personal space, maybe. Or I don't know. I don't know. If yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways.
0: <laughs> uh, the book is out now from Top Shelf Comics, uh, Home Time Volume 1, with Volume 2 coming I'm presuming in a couple of years,
1: yes, yeah, yeah. In a couple, of, I can't give a firm deadline, I'm hoping 2020. Um, but we'll see how we go. Well,
0: the first volume was very enjoyable, and I hope folks take the time to check it out. Uh, thank you so much. I've been talking to Campbell White, and uh, who's about to go off to Indonesia.
1: I am, I am. Uh...
2: Trailhead full of zombies. I met a strange lady. She made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, Do you come from a